Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Kabir, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Michael Roderick. And when he talked to me about the work that you were doing, I thought, yeah, this is really kind of out there and unconventional, which is exactly why it intrigued me. Uh, so on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to uh, what you're up to and the work that you're doing in the world today? Sure. Uh, I'm the author of a new book called Coins, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. And uh, it's really a book on um, money, where it comes from, and its future. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book uh, was because I started working on Wall Street just a few months before the 2008 financial crisis. And I was sort of just really alarmed with the devastation that it caused. I wanted to know, you know, what's happening in the brain when we deal with money? Because everyone was using money in such an irrational way. And, uh, you know, and I started doing some research and I found that money activates the same neural reward circuits as cocaine. You know, take a brain scan of someone on cocaine and and I just found this so fascinating, so I did so much research, and I've just been, uh, I try to put in perspective, I was, I was working at, you know, at an investment bank in the middle of the crisis, and I felt, I'm witnessing history, I want to, uh, to write about this. And so, if you go sort of even further back, um, I started, listen, my, my background, I'm from Atlanta, and I went to, uh, to school in New Hampshire, I started volunteering on the John Kerry presidential campaign, and he lost. So I, I uh, then went to graduate school in London at the London School of Economics, and um, <clears throat> that's you know the summer before graduate school. I was in New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina had happened, and I wanted to stay. I was writing a book on jazz music, and I wanted to stay in New Orleans. And uh, I asked my mentor. I said, you know, I want to stay and help the poor people of New Orleans and bring the musicians back. He said, Kabir, if you want to help poor people, go work at an investment bank. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty unconventional advice. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you know, before you go out and like give money away, learn how to make it. Mm. And so what I did was I sort of applied to uh, investment banks, and uh, I got a job working in emerging market uh, investments. And so literally for the last seven years, I've been traveling the world, over 25 countries, from you know, South Africa to Sri Lanka, from Mongolia uh, down to Vietnam, 
looking at investment opportunities for large institutional managers. And it gave me sort of a very unusual perspective of how different cultures think about money. And um, it sort of culminates, my quest to understand money culminates in this book, Coined. Hmm. So let's do this. Uh, You know, I think perhaps one of the most interesting things to me personally is how our brain reacts to money. You said the the reward circuitry is almost exactly like being on cocaine. Well, let's talk about that in a bit more detail. I mean, what does money do to the brain? And, you know, what are the real takeaways for us? I mean, as, as people who are constantly affected by our money or lack thereof. Yeah, there's a, well, in that, there's the Harvard uh, neuroscientist who, who did this research. They scanned the brains of 12 people and, uh, and then they compared those results, the, you know, using MRI brain scans to uh, cocaine addicts, and they found there's a part of the brain which is deep within, sort of deep within the brain, the subcortical region, meaning sort of the, the part below the neocortex, sort of the, the, the subconscious, if you will, um, and it's called the nucleus accumbens, nucleus accumbens, and that is very integral to, um, to feelings of reward and stimulation, and so they found that the brain scans are virtually indistinguishable between cocaine addicts and someone who's about to make money. And you know, there there is a field, there is an emerging field which is really quite fascinating, called neuroeconomics. Neuroeconomics, and it's really brain scientists, neuroscientists who get fascinated by uh, financial decision making. So, just to give you an example, there's a guy named Brian Knudsen out in Stanford University, and um, we we kind of spent a couple of days together while he was in New York, and he scanned the brains of. Of men who, and they, he showed him pictures of naked bodies, excuse me, naked women, dead bodies, and uh, and money. Mm-hmm. And what got the most activation in the nucleus accumbens? It was money. And so the question is, well, the question is, why is that? What what, what is it about money that induces such a physiological change? I mean, just by by mentioning the word money to your you, your skin conductance is in, is probably increasing, and. That, that's like a physiological change. Like your the excitement level, you can feel it on your skin. You may not be conscious of it, but it's mm-hmm. happening. And so, question is why. And so I looked at this and I found that um, that you know money represents represents something deeply evolutionary. It represents sort of a tool that helps us survive. Mm-hmm. And that's why I didn't just stop at the brain in neuroeconomics, I got on a plane and went to the Galapagos Islands, and I wanted to study the evolution, just like Charles Darwin did, the evolution of, of species and how the brain adapted so that uh, it could create a tool called money. Hmm. So <clears throat> let's talk about that in a bit more depth. I mean, how, had the, the brain, how did the brain you know, a- adapt and evolve uh, to create this tool called money? And then, of course, Again, you know, like you said, I mean, we have almost this visceral reaction to it uh, that you can't even help. Uh, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Uh, but let, let's talk about this whole evolutionary concept and, and kind of, you know, you earlier said, you know, where money has come from and where it's headed for our future. So let's talk about the evolution of it and how it kind of applies and, you know, where we're headed with it. Sure. So why did I go to the Galapagos Islands? I went because, you know, Charles Darwin went there. He was inspired by his theory of, of uh, natural selection, evolution by natural selection. And it's sort of when, you, when, you, when I went there, I, I was going around with marine biologists. We went diving together. And the reason I wanted to do this, 
you know, what is money? Money is an instrument of exchange. Okay, that's, you know, if you look at a baseball bat, you're not going to really work out the, the rules of baseball just by looking at a bat. I want to say, what is, where does exchange come from? And so it's not, you look outside of the natural world, there's exchange happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. I happen to be underwater watching a turtle and, a, and a, some wrasse fish kind of, uh, I know this is out there, but I'm going to get back to it. Um, they're basically cleaning each other. The, the fish clean the turtle, right? It's a symbiosis. And so I trace the idea of symbiosis back to the beginning of the cell. And you say, okay, symbiosis, relying on each other, is critical to life on this planet. I mean, right now we're talking, but we're in, we're in a symbiotic relationship with the plants. We're breathing out carbon dioxide and they're emitting oxygen. Mm-hmm. So there's, exchange, there's exchange happening everywhere. Now, what makes, I mean, humans are the only organisms that um, use money or have invented money. And why, why did that happen? Well, you look at about 200,000 years ago, um, when sort of homo sapiens come about, you have the expansion of the brain, essentially. And, and there's a lot of reasons for why maybe there was a, a changes in the climate. Uh, maybe there was a, a, some kind of competition going on. But the brain expanded, and, and they've been able to cross-reference, um, look at skulls from that period. And, and not the, the part of the brain that really got the bigger was the neocortex, the part, the prefrontal cortex, the sort of the part that is our reasoning center, the part that um, helps us reflect. And so what happens around 200,000 years ago is we start to realize, hmm, exchange can benefit us. You know, by exchanging, we can increase our chances of survival. Mm-hmm. And so by, by the time you get to about 40,000 BC, you start to see incredible artistic renderings in, in caves. They're making symbols. And what is money but a symbol? Money is a symbol of value. And so increasingly you see that humans start to create tools. And one of these tools is called money. In fact, when they do brain scans, back to neuroscience, when they do brain scans and they show images of people, uh, they show a video of uh, people tearing up money, what's the part of the brain that activates? It's the part of the brain that activates that, well, when we use tools, when we, use, when we uh, create stone, um, um, stone objects, stone tools. So when people say, oh, money is a tool, yeah, there's, there's more than an empty metaphor. There's a neurological basis that the brain processes it, processes it as a tool. So I guess, I guess the main point is here, exchange is everywhere. Um, humans became aware that it's beneficial to our survival, so we created tools to, to um, we created tools to sort of foster and abet it. So that's sort of the history of money, mm-hmm. and and so ultimately, you know, I, I trace in the book coins, I trace um, sort of the, the beginnings of, of what money is, and there one of the one of the myths that um, you know, you look at what, what what how did money begin, and so. There's sort of an economic myth that, oh, and you, I'm sure you've heard it, that, you know, there was bartering, and then uh, there was so much bartering that we needed tool, we need something to replace it, so money was invented. And so, you know, Adam Smith talks about this, Aristotle talks about this. But, you know, anthropologists look at this, and they say, well, wait a second. There's never been a society in the history of the world that's ever existed that has relied on bartering. And so I, um, you know, looked, <laughs> looked into this, and sure enough, in 4,000, you know, 4,500 BC, there was a currency that was wide in circulation, and that currency was called debt, financial loan documents. You know, in ancient Mesopotamia, there was an incredible amount of loans going out, and it's not until 700 BC in Western Lydia that money is invented in the form of coins. So it goes to show you that the most, I guess, the most ancient type of currency and the most important currency even today is debt. 
mm-hmm. not just not just financial debt, but social debt. And we all we all keep track of it. We all Tom Wolf writes about it. So he calls it the favor bank. You're like you know, Serena, like who owes you? Like I know who owes who. It, like you sort of mentally keep track about it. You don't want to be too calculating about it. But from an evolutionary perspective, like if you don't invite people, if you catch a big piece of meat and you don't invite other people to share it with you. Like you're going to be screwed the next time if mm-hmm. you don't have something to eat. It's basically you want to be part of the tribe, and so the most powerful currency that we often don't think about is social debt and then financial debt, and so that's sort of what I look at in terms of in, in the book. And there's all kinds of complicated, complicated um, like uh, debt exchanges. Like I, I was in, I went to 25 countries, over 25 countries, researching uh, for this book. And in Japan, it is so, so difficult to give a gift to someone in Japan. Mm. And it's like, you know, I, I bought these grapes, these very delicious grapes in Japan. And I, I would give them to my friends and no one wanted to accept them. Why, why don't you, why won't you take a grape, man? They're really good. $40 for these grapes. And because they're like specially blended. And so we don't, it, it boiled down to, they didn't want to be seen as taking a debt for me that they couldn't repay. So we're, you're going to be leaving tomorrow. We'll never be able to repay it. I was like, no, no, man. It's like, and so this idea of debt, I mean, the word arigato, thank you in Japanese means like it translates to thank you, but this debt is too much. This is a burden, which is too difficult for me to repay. Mm. And so when you go to a department store, they will not let you wrap your own presents because if you do a poor job, it will reflect poorly on the store. Like when you go to a wedding, you have to make sure that you, you, you tie the ribbon perfectly if you tie it too loose that implies you don't think the marriage is going to last wow so they're, yeah they're very sensitive about gift giving and the reason i bring this up is because i mean everyone talks about the future of money but really um the, the main currency in the world is debt now i mean do you want to talk about what the future is sure i mean look there's a lot of lot of uh conversation about what will money look like in the future i mean almost every day you hear about bitcoin you hear about uh, digital crypto cryptocurrencies, and so yeah, I mean that's one possible future. But I think um, I think probably the most um, the most important thing to think about the future of money is look, eighty five percent of the world's transactions are still cash, and so and that's not not just in the developing world like India. Mm-hmm. It's also it's also in the de- developed world. I mean, when you go to Germany or like Japan, it is super difficult to pay by a credit card. So, and, w- and one of the reasons, like in Germany, the word for, uh, the word schuld, that's the word for debt. It, it, it translates to sin, right? So there's, a, there's cultural, like you can even see, there's cultural attitudes you can even see in Germany. Like they, they were the ones sort of lending out to other people, but they weren't borrowing, you know, they weren't the ones who got in trouble um, borrowing too much in, in the European crisis. Mm-hmm. So, but there's a lack of credit cards in the, in in the emerging world, and even in the developed world. But one thing that there's a plethora of, an abundance of, is, uh, is mobile phones, right? So even in India and China, there's so many mobile phones. So the future of money in the developed and developing world is mobile transactions, using your phone as a payment device. Mm-hmm. And that can be, um, you know, there's all kinds of apps, Google Wallet, Apple Pay. Um, but... Once you once you use that, no one's talking about. I mean, once you once you um, purchase something via your phone and it gets it gets routed on the credit card networks. No one's talking about creating new credit card networks. They're really reliable, safe, um, arguably secure, and so we have the technology in place to get more people 
on the global payment networks. But what happens is we need we need more and more uh, payment devices. We need mobile phones to be used as payment devices, and so that's the future of uh, of money. If if things go like if the, if the society continues to do well, um, you know something like Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is not in my mind. It may not thrive as a currency because remember the government has the power to say this is or this is not money. Franklin Roosevelt did this in the 1930s. He said, "All right, gold is you can no longer own gold." Okay, so they everyone had to turn on the gold and they they literally built Fort Knox and they housed all the gold there. So the government reserves the right. So if Bitcoin were to take off as some you know incredible new currency. The government's like, oh, wait a second, it's now illegal. And they've already sort of like, they're, they're, they've already said, listen, Bitcoin may not, should be treated not as a currency, but as property. So importantly, um, Bitcoin is really a technology, not a, so much a currency. Mm-hmm. What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin's like a file transferring system. It's like if I were to send you like an MP3, of I don't know some some great Miles Davis recording which I loved, and I said here you go, Trini. Like let me send it to you. Now you now have a copy of it. But what if I wanted to send it to you in a way so that I would just transfer you the file? Like I would no longer retain possession of that. So Bitcoin allows that. Bitcoin allows allows file transferring. So it's it's really important to to see that distinction that if you can transfer a file in an authenticated manner, you can now disintermediate. The intermediaries. You can take out banks or brokerages. Anyone who sort of sits in the middle of a transaction, who sort of verifies this is a quality product, bit you can use the Bitcoin protocol. Now, there's more to the technology, but let's not uh, get in the weeds there. It's there's more to the technology, but it's really a a file transferring protocol. Mm-hmm. And so, and then I looked. I looked. You know, in doing the research, I wanted to go really out, really far out there. Like, what will we be using? Like a hundred years from now, and that's not a crazy idea because the first mention of the word credit card was in 1887 in a science fiction book called *Looking Backwards* about a guy who falls asleep and wakes up in a hundred years. So let's say we fall asleep today and we wake up in a hundred years. What do we see? Well, one idea you can look at what does science fiction talk about? People talk about implanting a brain chip in your in your head, and everyone has to everyone um, knows everyone every, uh, each other's reputation score. Mm-hmm. And so, so you walk into a restaurant, and then they say, "Oh, like Trini, like you have a great um, reputation. Here's the best seat in the house." Now, that's you can see we we kind of have that today with Yelp and uh, reputation as a currency. Um, but you know, if you can embed a payment, if you can embed, embed a pacemaker, why not a payment device? Mm-hmm. What about trading your time as a currency? Um, and every you know, there's that movie In Time, mm-hmm. and so you get to 25, and then. And then um, you start your march towards death. But maybe you, if you're really rich, you can you can hoard all the time and be immortal. Um, what if we're all plugged into the same grid and uh, energy grid? And you know we're trading energy. Remember how I talked about to the Galapagos? Like you need vitamin B. I need more. I need vitamin C. We do a trade, or maybe we can buy and sell memories, or we can we can buy experiences. I mean, memories just you just you just put that memory into into the into the brain. And so as long as money is stimulating the nucleus accumbens, the reward center of the brain, it's, it's, it doesn't matter what it looks like. And so then you look, what about space currency? Well, how do you calculate, like, you know, if, if, you, look, if, if you look at space, there's, the distances are far greater. I mean, going from, Vietnam, um, from Venus to, uh, or Mars to Earth is quite a long distance. So you would have to build an, a distributed network through the plan, planetary system, through the galaxy, and, uh, 
you know, it would have to be something that, uh, you know, how do you calculate interest rates, right? So if you're on Earth and I'm on Mars, by the time it gets to you, like maybe interest rates would have changed. So you got to put that clock on a planet. There's actually a lot of literature on this. And Paul Krugman has, a, uh, you know, New York Times, Nobel, Nobel winning economist has a, um, he writes about the interstellar uh, theory of trade, about how you would calculate the interest rate going from one planet to the other. So I really went out there, not just from the Galapagos, but really to outer space to think about what the future money will look like. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I want to spend a little bit more time talking about 
uh, you know, your experience with emerging markets and, and sort of cultural behaviors, and you've alluded to two of them, I'm really interested in uh, going really in depth how, you know, how money is, how our behavior uh, towards money changes across cultures. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of, um, there's all kinds of examples. Like, you know, I sort of tell the story in, in the book about, and this is sort of more of a Western idea, but, um, you know, we got, you got to drinks. I went out to drinks with my friends after work in London one day. I started working, um, in my job in London and every day after work, we'd go have drinks at the pub. And I did sort of a crude social experiment, which was I decided not to pay for my round of drinks. And so when the time came around, everyone was, you know, we had four Guinnesses, came around, hey, man, Kabir, do you, let's get another round. I said, you know, I said, let's, let's do it, but I'm not going to pay for them. And all of a sudden people were like, what? Like, you got to pay for your round of drinks. And um, I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And so they kind of jo- laughed and the conversation went on. But what had changed? People saw me as sort of a someone who... Um, was no longer really part of or abiding by the social norms or rituals of that tribe. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of debt, getting back to that, the idea of debt is so powerful that it can really affect how we look at people. And debt, this idea of, is, is so um, omnipresent in different communities in the world. Like, for instance, there's a society, a Native American community in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and, uh, you know, I'm going to mis- mispronounce the name, but it's Kwakatukul. It starts with a K, K-W-A-T. And what they do is they have a ceremony called a potlatch. It's not, it's, it's not nothing related to potluck, but just it's called a pot, potlatch. And what you do is you hold a potlatch when you have a, um, a ceremony, like a new, a new, a new uh, chief is going to take over for power, or maybe there's a marriage or something. And what you do is you invite all your friends in the, in the competing or the neighboring tribes over to the potlatch. Mm-hmm. And and then what you do is you then start handing out gifts, like you start lavishing everyone with gifts, and the whole idea is you you, you give out the gifts by status and rank, so you're kind of reinforcing your your vision of them, but but in some of these uh, some in some of these uh, um, tribes, it's almost like an insult. You try to lavish the person and say, look how much I'm giving you, almost say you're not worthy. I mean, I, I I'm so worthy. Look, I'm giving you so much. You, and you can't really even ever repay me. And it's a way to sort of control others by giving them a gift. And so this idea of potlatch or in, like uh, – and the idea is when you get a gift in, in that community, ultimately you're supposed to, supposed to give it back or to pass it on. And this is the term where the term Indian giver comes from because in America or in Lewis and Clark's times, you know, they would go and they would give a gift to someone – and what happens is, okay, now I retain the gift. But in a Native American community, in you know, in the, in the Pacific Islands, the idea is when you get a gift, you're supposed to give it. You're supposed to pass it on because it needs to retain the spirit of being a gift, right? I mean, we always say pay it forward, but really, it's like you give me a gift, and you know, and in three weeks' time, I'll pass it on to someone else. And so this idea of gift giving and passing on the spirits of the gift, like in the, in the Maori tribe. In New Zealand, the whole idea is there's something called a how, H-A-U. And when you get a gift, that's considered that the gift has a how, a spirit to it. And you're supposed to take, let, let's say, for instance, it's, it's, uh, someone gives you a gift of some deer meat. Well, you're supposed to take that meat and then offer some, you know, take some of it and offer it back to the, 
to the forest gods and gives them back. So this constant cycle of gift giving, gift giving, gift giving, that perhaps we don't see as much in the in Western society because once you get a gift, that's the end of the really or end of that transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so all across the world, I mean, there's this, there's very. I mean, we talked a little bit about Japan, but you see it also online, right? So Napster. I mean, look Kickstarter. Kickstarter is why, why do you give why do you give money to your friends on Kickstarter? There's no financial reason. Mm-hmm. Like you're not gonna, you're not going to make any money off a project. So you get that email. It's like, hey, my my friends making a new album. So it's because you feel a social tie to someone. I mean, a gift is really an obligation. And you're not just, you know, there's ribbons on the gift. That's not just like a ribbon. You're actually tying the person to an obligation. And so the whole idea is that Kickstarter sort of induces people to, to, to give money because you feel an obligation to someone. And then they make a ton of money. on They take 5% on, on whatever is raised. Mm-hmm. So all across the world, I, think, I thought a very interesting way to look at money are, uh, is sort of looking at how people give gifts because you can really read into anthropological insights into how do people use gifts. Now, for money itself, listen, there's, there's all kinds of strange rituals. Like in Nigeria, people, people, uh, you, well, in Nigeria, when you when you die, you're, you're supposed to be buried with money, right? To take money with you to the afterlife. In India, you're supposed to offer money to newborns and their families. It's sort of like welcome to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, in Iraq, well, when you get married. You're supposed to, uh, in Persia, you're supposed to string garlands of money around you. It's sort of a, a symbol of prosperity. So in, all around the world, money is integral to all kinds of cultural rituals, all kinds of uh, uh, societies. And so you know, I was in, I was in Mongolia and, uh, with a family outside their yurt, their, their, you know, their, and uh, their, their gur, as they call it. And you know, I, we spent a few hours with them and and I, my guide said, "Listen, you're supposed to give some money to the child, but not directly to the to the fa- to the father, because it'll be insulting if you give him, you know, just a few uh, banknotes. But if you give it to the kid, it's more like oh, they can get some chocolates or something. So there's all kinds of weird cultural things when it comes to money. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I guess where I want to take this is is looking at you know what are the implications of all of this uh, and all of your research for our own behavior, our own economic situations, and, you know, how we deal with money. If I'm listening to this, what are sort of the, the practical takeaways from this? Well, one of them is to be more aware of how money influences our lives. For example, I talk about this in the book, like when you sit outside, uh, when you go out to eat and you sit outside, and if it's a sunny day, you're more likely to tip uh, or give more money on the tip than if you sit inside. And it's maybe even the sun puts you in a good, if it's, if it's a nice day, that is. Mm-hmm. The sun may put you in a better mood and uh, you just feel like more friendly and you give more money. But then they looked at this. They said, okay, well, they looked at 26 countries around the world. And for over the last 80 years, one thing we have really good data on are stock market prices. Another thing we have really good data on um, is weather weather patterns. So they compared weather patterns with stock prices, and sure enough, they found that on sunny days, the markets return, I think, 24.8% more than on overcast days. And so you start to see that a lot of our economic decisions are made at the subconscious level, that we're not truly aware, we're not truly awake to what's why we're making financial decisions. Now, this is really old hat. You know, Don Draper on the show Mad Men, like, he makes a living trying to influence your subconscious so you make financial decisions. But 
part of why I wanted to write the book, especially the chapter on neuroscience, to say, listen, a lot of your financial decisions, you're not really aware when you're making them. In fact, like the neuroeconomist, Brian Knudsen, if he were to scan your brain, he can tell you, he can predict with, I think, 90% of confidence whether you're going to choose a stock or a bond. In fact, there's actually even a genetic you know, if you have certain genes, it's more likely that they've, they've said if you have persons who have this type of gene, you're more likely to be risk averse and have higher FICO scores. So, just one of the takeaways is to be more mindful about, hey, how am I making my decisions? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and one way to do that, one way to monitor it is sort of like visualize your spending habits. Um, you know, all online banking systems have this, and to sort of realize that everyone's coming out to you trying to sell you stuff. Mm-hmm. And so one of the studies I looked at was how can we be future, uh, how can we be more uh, sensible or better about um, using our money? Look, m- most Americans, a lot of Americans are in debt. And so they did this another study where they took someone and then they they make you it's like a virtual reality test to show you a picture of you that's been aged I think 50, 60 years. Uh, ultimately you're older, you're grayer. And then they ask you to make an investment decision. And sure enough, more people put money into savings accounts then because they realize that I'm not always going to be young and vibrant. And, um, and so one thing I think for this book is I want to help sort of Americans get better about the financial literacy and realize that it is important to save. It is important to put money away for a rainy day. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to do so. But um, the whole purpose of this book was to show that money is really influencing us and shaping us from our physiology to our mental capacity, uh, all throughout our lives. And sometimes often we don't really realize it. Hmm. Why do you think it is that we've lacked awareness for so long or, uh, it's, it's been sort of out of conscious awareness and why do you think most people don't even bother to cultivate awareness? Man, if I knew, if I knew the answer to that one, it's, it's, it, I mean, Danny Kahneman, the behavioral economist talks uh-huh. about, you know, talks about system one, system two thinking that most of our decisions are automatic. Like right now, <laughs> You're breathing, um, you're, you're, uh, you know, your cells are dividing essentially. There's a lot going on. You're listening to that ambient noise in the background, whatever. There's a lot being processed. And so most of our decisions are, are sort of subconscious. And like the brain is not very good at, like, at making um, incredible calculating decisions. Like my dad always plays a lottery. I'm like, Dad, why do you play the lottery? Like, you know, because, you know, I won $400 once, I matched a few numbers or, you know, I saw on the news someone won, you know, a few million dollars. It's like, you know, the statistical probability of you playing the lottery is like very, very low. If It's impossible. You're not going to win this. Yet every Saturday he goes to the gas station, he buys a ticket. And so why does he do that? So that's an irrational activity. And so he, uh, you know, Danny Conwell writes about this saying that's called the availability heuristic, basically a mental shortcut that instead of calculating the large in the, the large or insignificant probability that will win the lottery, uh, the brain does a, does a shortcut. Oh, imagine the more easily you can remember something, the more likely thing is going to happen, and you're, you're going to make that decision. And so, our brain sort of plays tricks on us. I mean, from an evolutionary standpoint, it, it, it works out well. If I already yell, if I already yelled to you, duck, you, you'll you'll take cover, and like because you don't want to. You don't want to hurt yourself, or you don't want to uh, you don't want to get hurt hit by something that's coming your way. So the, these shortcuts are really good in some cases, but in, in, in case of uh, calculating a huge problem set, it's not our brains aren't really equipped to do that. And so, 
but the, at the end of the day, money is a symbol. And what matters is that symbols have emotional meaning. And so when you're very, when you're when you when's the first time you learn about money? Like when you're a kid, your mom or dad takes you to the store and you buy some milk or something and you start to realize there's a value to money and somehow those neurons in your brain get wired together. Okay, money is a symbol, money is a piece of paper. And you start to realize what you know that that but 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 what is a symbol? A symbol needs some kind of value to it. You know, if you just see money as a piece of paper, you're like it's just a piece of paper. You see it as something else. This is a piece of paper that is a, it's important. Like if you see your mom is just a woman with, with long brown hair, no, that's not what mom is. Mom is someone who takes care of you, who's loving. So you, we've got to see money as like an emotional symbol. I mean, all symbols should have some kind of emotional attachment. That's what they are. A symbol represents something else. So increasingly, you don't see money so much as like this rational, logical thing that we use. Think of, think of the money as like this emotional object that like it's sort of like we have to we have to conquer. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears briefly. I, I want to get uh, a bit more into your personal story, uh, which you know usually do at the beginning, but uh, this is such an unusual interview in, in terms of uh, just the content. You know, I mean, you went into what by most standards would be considered a, a fairly conventional path of a career, and somehow you carved out this very unconventional route, and you saw opportunities to do things that might not be obvious to the average person because not everybody has done what you've done in the same role. And I guess for me, the real question is, you know, how you cultivate an awareness and an ability to look for what might be opportunities that aren't currently on your radar within the context of whatever you're doing. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, I've ha I've always thought of my life, I see my life as a portfolio, like, you know, not just an investment portfolio. You want to be diversified in your stocks and bonds and index funds. I see my life as a portfolio. And so I, mean, I didn't, the part of the story you didn't, I didn't tell you is that when I started working in an investment bank, I, I cried on my first day <laughs> and I was like, I cannot believe I'm here. Um, because the other part of the story is I, one of my friends and I, we had started a, a company in India, a startup company and we lost, um, we lost our money and we were, it was doing okay. So I decided to get a job and uh, send my paychecks to him. And so and then what happened was the financial crisis, and I got stuck at um, at the bank. And but it, you know, there's this whole whole idea that sometimes um, life does not go. A lot of times, life does not go according to plan. But wherever you end up is sort of where you need to be. And I, I started realizing that you know this is an incredible opportunity to travel the world and see unusual things. And I've always had a diversity of interests. I, I was a jazz musician for many years, and I wrote my first book on jazz music. I wrote a book with my godfather on the civil rights movement. Uh, he was uh, Dr. King's best friend and uh, wrote a children's book. So I've always been writing and, and um, trying to connect the dots. You know, I, I, a few years working in a bank, I felt an, an incredible urge to serve my country. So I got commissioned as an officer in the U United States Navy Reserve. So on the weekends, I, I'm in the Navy. And, and then there's music. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to produce albums. I produce, you know, so two weeks ago, we were blessed. This album I produced um, won a Grammy Award for the best Latin jazz album of the year. So I tried to balance my life. I tried to say, okay, maybe my job will give me 65% satisfaction. Well, the music gives me another 25% satisfaction. And then, my, then I get to serve my country, which gives me like, an incredible amount of satisfaction. So I, I start to see this balance between what I do. And that, when that happens, sort of opportunities come your way. 
Like, mm-hmm. I don't really think there's a dream job out there. I think there's a dream life and you've got to fill your life. You've got to sort of curate those things you want in your life and then and, and design your life around the experiences you want. Hmm. I love that because I think it's so true. Uh, you know, it reminds me of an email that I got from a, a reader of my book. Uh, you know, I, I'd mentioned that, you know, often creation becomes its own reward and he thought that was the stupidest thing. He said, there's no reason to do anything if it doesn't have some sort of external benefit to you. Yeah, I mean, I disagree. So do I, obviously. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, there's a value to creation, right? And, like, the whole act of creating, like, what makes humans possible, humanity possible, is the act of creation. It's like seeing something in our minds and creating it. That's a very That's the mark of humanity, our creativity. And so for me, it's, you know, I'm... I it's I like to work on these projects. I mean, writing a book, this book took four years to work on, and so you know, producing uh, an album takes years in, in the making. And so, you know, there's a little poster when I go to my Navy weekends. There's a poster in the gymnasium, and it talks about greatness. Like, if you want to be great, great. What is greatness? Greatness is about giving us something good today for something great tomorrow. And so, for the last many years, I've not gone out, watched for almost no television. Because I've been in the act of creation. And you know, creation can be very isolating. Creation can be very uh, lonely at times. But you've got to keep on doing it because if, if you believe in your vision, you, you work on it every day and you push out something that you think is really great. In this case, I think a book or, or music. So creation is the hallmark of, of humanity. Wow. Well, I, I think that actually makes a, a sort of really nice way to wrap up our conversation. Uh, I want to ask you one last question. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Man, Thelonious Monk, the great jazz musician, he said the genius is someone who's most like himself. And you got to really, you got to really think about that. That you know what the world wants is you. It doesn't want you being someone else. You got to be yourself. And uh, you know, with all warts and all. And so the genius is someone is most like you and that's what makes someone that's what makes you really unmistakable because you can't be confused for someone else especially if you're being yourself hmm. well <clears throat> Kabir this has been really really interesting uh, definitely very different than a lot of the previous interviews we've done uh, sort of you know uh, departure from the typical subject matter really interesting stuff though my pleasure thanks for including me yeah and uh, for those of you listening we will wrap the show with that If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.